Okay. Hello, everyone. We are late and we need a note, and I apologise, but we had technical difficulties that we have now and it is wonderful to be joined by Tanya Plibersek, the Shadow Minister for Education. Uh, thanks for giving up an evening, Tanya. It's such a pleasure. It's such a pleasure to be with you, Susan, and with the people that you've got online. And I'm very sorry, Susan's very diplomatic, but it was my technical difficulties, not hers. It was me being hopeless with the new technology. So I'm sorry about that. Well, I think there might be a few teachers who've had to struggle with new technology themselves in the last few months, and we all understand um, that, that, in fact, it's been a massive learning curve for so many of us, uh, Zooming and BeLive and all these different platforms. And that is one of the things I think we should talk about tonight as we go through. So what we thought we'd do is have Tanya and I'll have a bit of a chat about some of the things we've seen. And I've already got questions from some of the uh, uh, teachers and parents in the Blue Mountains and the Hawkesbury, who have, I'm not sure we're going to be able to answer all of them, but it'll certainly give insight into how teachers, parents, and people connected to schools are feeling. Um, so why don't we uh, kick off? And one of the things I was really interested to ask you, Tanya, to reflect on, as Shadow Minister, you will have been inundated in, with things from your regular electorate, but on top of that, all the education issues that have come up and mm. if we start with schools um how can you just reflect on what you've observed just an overview of what you've mm. observed around schools and I, I, I and I always like to remind shadow ministers and ministers for that matter about the high number of teachers that we have especially in the blue mountains mm. um more than anywhere else uh concentrated um than anywhere else in the country. So, and I know you know teachers have really gone the extra mile during this time. Oh, 100%, Susan. I mean, I think that's the most incredible thing about this, how quickly teachers right around the country uh, worked together to um, reassure children. I mean, actually, this unfolding health crisis, we need to remember, caused a lot of anxiety in families and amongst children. So first of all, to reassure children that things were going to be okay, and then to develop in the last few weeks of last term and over, over the school holidays and then coming into this new term, a whole new way of teaching with new materials, working collaboratively, uh, teaching some children online, still teaching some children in the classroom if their parents had to physically go to work. Um, dealing with uh, the new technology, um, which <laughs> you can see I would have struggled with. Hopefully better than we have. And I think it's just been a phenomenal effort. Like truly, if you had said to people a year ago, by the way, you're going to have a week or two to completely change the way you're teaching and the materials you had planned uh, and get your kids online and reassure their families and think about your own health and safety and worry, you know, worry about your own family and it was going to go uh, really as smoothly as it did. I, I mean, I don't think anybody would have thought we were capable of what we were capable of. So I think the first thing to do is just give a really big tick and a big thanks to everybody who did that, the parents who were supporting at home, uh, the, the kids who um, managed, uh, if they're like my children, to varying degrees to complete the work set for them. Um, and 
and I, I do think it's something that we should sort of just pause for a minute, reflect on and be proud of, but there are questions that arise from it. And they're in two sort of streams, I think. The first stream of questions was about actually what was good about this. Um, we need to, I think, really take a little while to think about and digest and reflect on, um, you know, children were working in some cases at different paces. They were working intensely for shorter periods, but they were um, breaking the day up with creative activities, you know, cooking, uh, going outside, you know, with their parents in the garden or for a bushwalk or whatever they could do safely outside. Um, so thinking actually about um, how, uh, how the flipped classroom that some teachers were using worked and what was good about it. I mean, I actually think uh, giving teenagers an extra hour in bed in the morning was probably one of the best things um, during this period because they're not great first thing in the morning. And we know that that's not just grumpiness. I mean, that's physiology. Uh, and then the other thing that I think it's very important for us to try and tease out over coming months is, you know, we had all these people talking about it's not good for kids um, who are educationally disadvantaged to miss out on this time because they'll fall behind. And I would be the first person to acknowledge that. But then we need to ask the next question, why are they educationally disadvantaged and what were we doing about it before this crisis struck and what should we be doing about it from now on? So um, we have, for example, uh, thousands of families where kids were asked to do work online, but they had no device or one device between two or three kids, no internet connection, uh, no ability really to communicate with the school. And schools did a great job of printing off materials. But if you've got one kid who can, you know, watch an online lecture from the um, British Museum about Egyptology, and another kid who's being dropped off a photocopied chapter in a textbook, you know, the different levels of engagement you get in those different scenarios would be apparent to anyone. Um, and, you know, the worry about kids who are falling behind, I think is a really genuine worry, but it's something that is, is it's been highlighted during this time, but it's a much bigger issue. It's the, it's the reason that we have to have uh, sector-blind needs-based funding where the biggest increases go in the shortest time to the children who need the most help because um, this educational disadvantage, we've admitted it now, well, we have to fix it. You don't just get to say it's a problem and then say, whoops, snap back, we're back to normal. We're going to go back to ignoring the disparities of access to education that we have in this country. And I'll just pick up on that from the Blue Mountains and Hawkesbury perspective. I've been speaking to a lot of Year 12 students. One Blue Mountains Year 12 student told me that he was without the internet for a month. Wow. And that's because we have, we still don't all have the NBN. And where we do, it isn't always working the way that we envisaged the board when that program was first brought in. So even with the NBN, there is digital inequity. 
Um, and that's without talking laptops and devices. And it's been really interesting to hear the unevenness of it. Some schools were already using laptops in the classroom, so the change wasn't so great. That's right. But another student said to me she managed to do the switch and go from book-based in class to laptop-based, and that took some adjustments. But now she's back being book-based again. And so they're really coping uh, with a lot. And it isn't all even. And I think throughout, uh, you know, in even the broader terms, what we're seeing is real unevenness. And as you say, the most vulnerable perhaps being left even more vulnerable. Um, and others thriving in the environment because it really suited their learning style and their, the, the facilities they had. So, yeah, I think from an education perspective, there are all the sorts of things we'd like to see um, can't be addressed as, as the months go on. But there's not a lot of time to do things for Year 12. Uh, I've spoken to Year 12 students in nearly every um, high school in my electorate and there's wonderful resilience and there's wonderful optimism, but there's also anxiety and confusion. Um, how, what is it that we can try and do for those kids? Well, I think the most important thing we can do is reassure them that your HSC is not, not the be all and end all. It's not, I, I, often, um, I often tell the story, Susan, about uh, my my high school boyfriend and I both wanted to study journalism and I worked really hard and got into a communications degree with a high HSC mark and he didn't, he totally <laughs> goofed off a lot in year 11 and 12. Um, but he studied another course for a year and then he got into the course that I did and, you know, he's been a foreign correspondent for his whole life and I never ended up working as a journalist. So there are paths, there are all different paths to the same destination and people shouldn't worry that th this one set of exams will define them forever. If there's any parents of HSC kids listening, I'm not telling your kids not to work because, <laughs> you know, the straight path's a bit shorter and a bit easier. But um, so we have to, I think, reassure young people because it has been a time of enormous anxiety. But then the, the next most useful thing we can do is make sure that universities are offering uh, positions not just based on um, one set of exams. A lot of universities now are saying we're happy to look at your year 11 marks. Um, ANU's doing something great. They're, they've actually uh, they've already started this beforehand, but they're offering um, places to the top two students of any school in Australia, doesn't matter what their marks, um, and, you know, helping with uh, moving to Canberra if um, students needed to move. Um, other universities have said that they'll um, they'll interview students. So I think it is really important that universities um, reach out and say, we know it's been a hard year and we're happy to consider other elements of your education. And um, and uh, same, obviously, same goes for TAFE. If people are thinking about an apprenticeship after this year, uh, I think um, TAFEs and um, universities should both be thinking about looking at uh, the whole of the student, their, their other marks, their other interests, their, you know, volunteering, if they're caring for people, all of that stuff really should be taken into account. And I think the other very important thing to do is for schools, TAFE and university to invest in that sort of um, mm -hmm. what we used to call careers advice, but it's beyond careers advice, isn't it? It's not just you want to be a plumber, you should study this. It's what 
what are you good at? What are you interested in? Have you thought about this? You could do this for a few years and then, you know, here's your career path to something else. Because most people these days don't have one job. They, well, like you, Susan, you know, you're a journalist and you've run your own small business. Um, a, a lot of people will, will start out doing something uh, that suits their lives when they're young and then using those skills, move into another area. Actually talking to someone at the beginning and not, you know, um, you've got to actually find the thing that you're passionate about, find the area that excites you and and then work out the sort of studies you need to, to do to go into that area. I think having good advice at that early stage is really critical and and. Year 11 and 12 will need it more so at the moment than they, they have in the past, I think. Now I've got lots of questions coming in, so I better go to some of our wonderful audience's questions. Uh, look, some of them are around the arrangements that are in place in New South Wales schools. Uh, and, of course, there'll be, there'll be variations because we've got public, independent and Catholic schools. But uh, here's, here's some of the questions that have come in. Sarah says, um, you know, what do you think about the fact that thermometers are not being used to do temperature checks at the gate for all people entering the school site? And Simon says, why didn't the kids go back gradually? And, and what, what are your thoughts? on that so there's oh you've just you've just gone into space tanya you've got a beautiful space background behind you <laughs> i think we've got a frozen screen happening so the question about thermometers is a very interesting one because um some countries have used thermometers and in some uh, you know in some workplaces and so on they are looking at thermometers the the evidence for whether they uh, make much of a difference is really very mixed so, uh, for example, if you've cycled to school, when you turn up to the school gate, you'll be hotter. If you are cold, you, your um, temperature will be lower. So unless you've actually got a significant fever, it would be very easy to, to, miss, uh, to miss symptoms of COVID-19 if you were just relying on a thermometer. So I think it is very important that people um, are, are careful of any symptoms if they feel a fever sore throat at all little scratchy throat runny nose cough sneeze they should get tested they should go to the doctor um, uh, but i think the the evidence for um i, I know like south korea was doing it uh, other places were doing it but I, I i don't think there's a very strong body of evidence to say that it is um, critical to keeping people safe. I think it's important to restrict access to the school. Um, I, I wouldn't be letting, uh, you know, anybody who doesn't need to be at the school come to the school. So all of the great things that we do, inviting the community into our schools, like the volunteer reading programs and things like that, I think probably need to be on hold for a little while. Um, uh, and the other question was about coming back gradually. Look, I, I mean, I think, um, uh, you know, a lot of schools have staggered it a little bit, but we had one case yesterday uh, and that is from a traveller that's come from overseas. So I, I think, you know, it is good for kids to be at school uh, if teachers or um or anyone is uh, um, immune compromised, then I think um, they need to be very careful. And I would be, 
uh, making alternate arrangements for them. But uh, other than that, I think being kids and if there's anybody who gets sick, contact tracing and cleaning, washing hands, cleaning. We need to make sure those facilities are available. Yeah, and, and look, that has always been a challenge in schools for there to be soap uh, in dispensers. And I know that there are ongoing challenges and parents talk to me about circumstances in their schools. And I know they're the sorts of things you'd hope the New South Wales Department of Education really gets a, gets a handle on and is able to um, show parents that there are the facilities that their kids need. Um, and the and other Susan, one of the things that is extraordinary about this, you know, is that the federal government set aside $10 million for upgraded cleaning in schools and, you know, more frequent cleaning, bathroom modifications if they needed to happen, hand sanitizers and so on, which I thought, oh, that's fantastic, $10 million, that's great. Um, and then, you know, when you read the fine print, it's actually only available to Catholic and independent schools. It's not available to public schools. And I, I just I cannot understand this sort of attitude. You know, it's not like the virus... Um, only attacks people who go to um, Catholic and independent schools. I mean, these are these are times when we really shouldn't be um, stuck on these sort of ideological ideas that the Commonwealth only helps Catholic and independent schools and the state governments have sole responsibility for public schools. That's not the way that school funding has worked for, for many, many decades. And it's sad to see it coming into play now. Mm. Um, Pam has messaged, uh, put, a, put a question up, talking about the cleaners who would be having to go to extraordinary lengths to make sure the, um, that the schools are at the very safest um, position. And she's just curious about what, what, what you're aware of in terms of the practices and that they've been introduced, her concern is they've been introduced as temporary practices, despite actually having been needed all along, uh, and that there aren't necessarily the resources in, and I know I know this um, particular Pam would have um, engagement with public schools. Uh, so that's the issue, isn't it? The ongoing support to allow the standards that we're going to need. This is not going to be over in a couple of weeks, uh, but to have ongoing support. And and if the federal government needs to be providing that, then. Uh, you know, my view is we're all going to have to contribute to keeping our kids, teachers and families safer. Oh, I 100% agree with you, um, with, with you, Susan, and with Pam. And plainly, um, you know, it's funny the things that have come out of this as a, as a positive, right? One of the positives uh, of COVID-19 is we're all being more careful, washing our hands, staying home if we're sick. We've seen the best flu season for many years, many, many uh um, like hundreds of people um, each year would have had the flu by now and we've really kept that down. That shows you actually what happens when we look after ourselves, look after each other and, and clean our public spaces properly. So uh, it will be an ongoing thing. Well, it, it will have to be an ongoing thing uh, for some time. And it, it also is worth reflecting on um, who we see as essential workers. Our community wouldn't have survived without cleaners, without truck drivers, without people stacking the shelves at Woolies trying to keep up with the demand for <laughs> toilet paper. Uh, we wouldn't have survived. And 
in recent years, we, we've really um, put pressure on a lot of these jobs. A lot of cleaning, for example, has been contracted out to companies that are trying to, uh, you know, clean as, as much, um, as many rooms as possible in as short a time as possible. Uh, we really have had an insight into just how vital the work is that's being done by a whole lot of people who are generally under a lot of pressure in insecure work and on low pay. And I think that has to change too. I mean, we are sadly looking at very high unemployment rates and underemployment rates in coming months. Um, I, I really hope that at least some of those people find work doing extra cleaning in all of our public spaces because we're going to need it. And um, I've got a question from Sophie, which takes us to a slightly different place, and that's around uh, the curriculum and how um, lesson plans and things are created, because she's asking why every individual teacher pretty much had to create online material. Um, and, and my thinking around this is I have seen a, um, a decentralisation of support. So it used to be, there used to be some fabulous resources in the Department of Education, and I think this would be replicated around the country. And certainly there was um, access to some uh, Commonwealth things as well, but over time that changed. So it really, um, it was a case where individual teachers were each creating, inventing the wheel. Uh, what, what's your thinking about how we collect those resources and make sure the same thing doesn't have to be repeated and, and how, you know, use it for as a good opportunity? Yes, it's such an important point because we do, we do want to respect the professionalism of teachers and we, we don't want them just, you know, they're not, they're not just... Um, slapping together, a, a, you know, slapping a bit of meat on a bun and, and pushing it across the counter uh, and saying, you know, yours is the same as everybody else's. We want teachers to um, develop the interests of the students that are in front of them, to share their passions, to be treated like professionals who know how to uh, write um, curriculum that will interest kids. But at the same time, reinventing the wheels just so counterproductive so ideally what you have is a really good menu of tested and interesting lessons um, and I think uh, in a lot of cases what you would look for um, um, formative testing um, uh, resources that would go with what you were trying to teach kids so you could keep track of you know whether they were learning and you wouldn't want to reinvent the wheel with that all the time and what we were proposing before the last election was a national evidence institute which would um, look at the materials that were available online look at the in interventions that were um, available for uh, children who were falling behind or struggling in a particular area and would actually grade them according to the evidence of whether they were good quality materials or not because you know people are always trying to flog resources into schools there's always some new set of readers that's the you know the best in the world and if you don't have this your kids are gonna um you know suffer so um but but d discovering and testing and working out all the time what the you know what the the best resources are is phenomenally time consuming and it, it can be very expensive for schools if they um go down 
uh, a, you know, a particular path that doesn't work out. So I think having um, centralised resources, but a menu of them, not not one lesson plan that, uh, you know, every year three in New South Wales is learning today or every year three in Australia is learning today. A menu of things that work is the way to go. But to make sure that there is an evidence base for those things, that they're not just made up. I think one of the really positive things out of this experience has been a deeper understanding of learning styles because we've seen the kids who've thrived, uh, we've seen the kids who've struggled and they're more aware about their own learning styles too. Uh, and, and being able to, you know, one of the challenges I know in a classroom when you've got a, a group of kids is knowing, you know, how do you get each one of them? And having been a, a trainer, I only had a very small group of people so I could work out fairly fast what their preferences were, whether to throw them in the deep end or whether to walk them through really slowly. Um, and, you know, so I think all of those things are great. The challenge I think we have is capturing that because, you know, teachers up here, we our teachers were exhausted at the end of last year and our students and probably parents too. We then had bushfires for months and no one had a summer. It affected Sydney as well, obviously, but when, when you're under threat, there was that extra anxiety. And then we barely had a chance to breathe clean air when this happened. So I'm really, really conscious. And then the, the, the holidays teachers had was spent, you know, getting ready for whatever was coming next. And, and then it all changed. And, and so I guess I really worry about the... Um, how we sustain and support teachers having gone through what they've gone through, particularly in my local community, knowing that this is going to be a massive term. They might get a breather in July, depending on how it goes. Uh, so, yeah, this supporting and sustaining teachers who, who have really not had a break since, well, the, the October holidays last year in, in, in our part of the world. Yeah, I, I, I'm very conscious of that too, Susan. We're, we're asking people just to keep going uh, under the most difficult and stressful, demanding circumstances. It's true. Um, one of the questions that comes through feeds into that a little bit, um, and that is what's, what's my position and yours on the New South Wales government's wage freeze for public servants, which includes teachers, and that's from Kay. Uh, well, I can tell you it's a bad idea. Well, uh, it's extraordinary, isn't it, that we are so grateful to people working on the front line until it comes to paying them. Yeah, it is It is an extraordinary thing. Um, and, you know, let's hope the upper house prevails on, on that one. Um, there's, look, there's a few extra questions on now going into broader school things. And this is, a, this is a tricky one, so I'm going to ask you. John has asked... Uh, yeah, <laughs> you're supposed to save me from the tricky ones, Susan, come on. <laughs> journalist at heart. You know, I didn't do my journalism degree at UTS to not ask the hard questions. <laughs> and John says, that where, are, where is Labor at regarding school funding and the school resource standard? And is the school's policy from the last election going to be carried forward? I know this is a question you've had and answered before, and it's probably good to just give people some insight into where we're at. Mm. Um, well, I, I will never give up trying to get 
schools to the schooling resource standard, 100% of the schooling resource standard. Uh, we're getting a little bit technical, so um, there'll probably be people wandering off for a commercial break right now. But essentially, the schooling resource standard is um, what it costs to educate a child in a primary school, what it costs to educate a child in a high school. Uh, and each of those standard figures um, is uh, amended depending on uh, whether the child has uh, additional learning needs, Indigenous, um, disability, non-English speaking background, small or remote school. And, uh, and I think that is still the right principle. Um, what I am concerned about is that in the current arrangement, the Commonwealth Government uh, will, will uh, only pay um, uh, a, a share of public school funding that, that means that public schools will only ever get to 95% of the schooling resource that they're entitled to, whereas non-government schools will get to 100% of the schooling resource standard for their school. Now, I don't begrudge non-government schools at 100%. My position is that all schools should get 100% of their fair funding level, and that's what we'll be working towards. Um, the truth is that we won't actually have a chance to change the funding arrangements for some years, even if we're elected at the next election, because all of the states and territories have signed an agreement with the government that goes for a few years. Um, one of the things that I'd be hoping to do, as well as uh, working on the Commonwealth share of the fair funding level, is looking at the way states have actually been allowed by the Commonwealth government to drop their funding. Um, some states have, for example, included building depreciation or public transport costs in the calculation of their contribution to public school funding. Well, they shouldn't be allowed to count those things because the, the fair funding level for schools was worked out based on what it cost to educate that child in the classroom. It, it never contemplated the cost of depreciation of buildings or the cost of a school, public, a school transport scheme. And I think the way the Commonwealth Government got the states to sign on was actually to say, well, that's fine, we're not going to give you, um, you know, we're not going to get to 100%. Uh, in fact, we're going to lock you in at 95% of the fair funding level. But by the way, you can drop your contribution too. It's the kids that suffer. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, we fought very hard and I know in the mountains in particular and the Hawkesbury, it was really valued that, that we were going to uh, improve the ability of schools to be able to put the resources in that they know the kids need. Uh, and, yeah, we'll, we'll see what the situation is when we, when we do in government. Um, can I... Can I just go to, there's a few questions around tertiary stuff and one is from Chris who says, who's asking about um, Commonwealth supported places post COVID-19 uh, for tertiary students. So can we talk about um, that, that tertiary education sector? It has such an important role to play as we, oh, there we go. We can see a little bit of a child there. And, <laughs> um, as, as we go into uh, a recovery phase, you know, the development of skills, um, what our year 12 sort of employment market that they land in uh, in a few months' time, skills and training and, and further education are going to be crucial. So can you just talk about how 
what ideas you can see might make, might be needed for, for that to fulfil the need that the community will have? Yeah, well, we are absolutely going to need um, a skilled workforce coming out of the COVID-19, certainly the health crisis, but also the, the economic crisis that, uh, that's been prompted. And uh, we had really significant skills shortages before um, the COVID-19 crisis. So we had 140,000 fewer apprentices uh, and trainees than when the Liberals first came to office. I know, Susan, you're aware of the fact that in the electorate of Macquarie, there's substantial, um, few, substantially fewer apprentices today than there were seven years ago. Um, in the first few months of this year, uh, between January and April, there was a 73% drop in the number of apprentice job ads. So we were already short on apprentices and trainees. Um, businesses are shedding them at the moment. Uh, there's a big drop in businesses taking on apprentices and trainees, but we already had skills shortages in a whole range of areas, you know, um, panel beaters, mechanics, um, pastry chefs, hairdressers, electricians, plumbers, carpenters, uh, sheet metal workers, uh, aeronautical engineers. Like, there's a bit, just a huge range of shortages that have been there for years and we've been dealing with it by inviting people on short-term visas to fill those vacancies. Well, we're not going to be able to do that anytime soon, again, with the travel restrictions that we see internationally. And we're going to have unemployment and underemployment. By the end of the year, some projections say, well, 19 or 20% if, if you include unemployment and underemployment. So we should be training people for the skills shortages that exist, the jobs that we'll need doing as the economy recovers. And that means rebuilding TAFE. It, it really means the $3 billion that's been cut from TAFE and training has to be restored. Uh, it means working uh, employers, unions, businesses, working um, in, in particular industries cooperatively and particular locations cooperatively. We need, um, you know, we know we're going to be hiring more people uh, to be disability carers in years to come. Where are the employers and TAFEs and unions um, sitting down together to work out the, the skills development um, plan that we need there. We absolutely need to be deep diving into this. And the Prime Minister talked about it um, at the press club the other day and it was, it was good that he said that there is an issue here and there's a problem, but um, I, I'd like to see a little bit more detail about uh, how he's proposing to address some of these issues and a bit more money on the table. And same thing with universities. Like right now, we're saying thank goodness for the doctors and nurses that um, were, you know, getting ready to to look after thousands of patients when we thought that um, COVID nineteen would really take hold here. And we're saying thank goodness for the medical researchers who are working so hard on a on a vaccine or a treatment for COVID nineteen. But at the same time, we're turning our backs on. Well, the same researchers in our universities have no job security. Um, the, the government has actually changed the rules three times to make sure that public universities aren't eligible for JobKeeper payments. Um, they just kept changing the goalposts and, um, and they've changed the rules once to make sure that the you know, handful of private universities we have in Australia actually are eligible. Again, I, I, don't, I really don't understand the sort of ideological approach here. 
We've got a, um, about 21,000 jobs at risk in our universities um, over the next six months, according to um, the university sector. We've already seen hundreds of jobs lost. And those jobs are, of course, they're, you know, professors, academics, tutors and so on. But they would be, a lot of them would be casuals. They would be um, postgraduate students who are um, teaching classes. They'd, they'd be people working in the cafeteria or, or in the, um, or in the admin areas or the, or the grounds, the security. Um, so I am, like I know in Macquarie, you've got a lot of um, people who work at, at, at universities, but University of Western Sydney in particular. Um, I am worried for their jobs. And I'm also worried for the research that won't get done. I'm worried for the students that won't be taught because of these, um, because well, of it. And I'll give you a tangible example of how that's flowing through to a student from my lecturer. She's an honours student uh, at Sydney University. Um, and she said her options for honours subjects have shrunk from seven to three. Wow. So she just, there's only three she can choose from uh, for the, I think, next semester or next year. And that's already flowing through to the education that she gets. And that's really scary because you don't want to disincentivize uh, young people from pursuing an education. This is, in fact, a great time to be investing in yourself and, and being, improving your, whatever your existing education standard is. And, and look, that leads to a question about job maker that someone has emailed me. Teresa um, is actually the chief executive of Macquarie Community College. And as she says, it's not TAFE, but it's not a for-profit college. It sort of sits in between to get lumped in with the for-profit ones. Um, but I know they have, they are a really extraordinary local provider. But her question is, you know, what do you make of the, what she sees as a federal takeover um, of the vet sector with the job maker announcement? Her view is, her concern is that it was pretty thin announcement, which I think you've echoed. Um, so there is a lot of interest in, in what, what I don't want to say was announced, what was talked about and how that might go through. So just talk to me a bit more about maybe what we think needs to be happening. In, in yeah. Look, look I, I, I did, I, I was kind of genuinely excited that the Prime Minister was talking about um, vocational education and training because it is such a neglected area of um, of public policy debate. We've cut $3 billion from TAFE and training in recent years. There are dozens of programs that have just been abolished, like good, useful programs that have just been abolished. And I thought, well, this is a great opportunity. It's on the agenda now. Let's let And people are ready to sit around the table and say, these are extraordinary times. We're prepared to, um, you know, set aside all our old prejudices and work together to create a system that works for students, works for employers, works for local industries. Um, I just didn't see any of that. And, uh, I, you know, I, I hope it'll come if the government does propose things that uh, genuinely will get people job ready for the jobs that are out there, uh, then we, we're up for that. Um, what made me really sad was the Prime Minister saying, and oh, by the way, there's no more money. I'm just going to lay out all these problems um, and uh, it's the fault of the states and territories. And, um, you know, I'm just going to criticise, but I, I don't actually have anything useful to do. There are great things that we could do. Um, for example, uh, the 
um, when we were last in government, we set up um, the uh, Australian Workplace Productivity Agency, it became in the end, and that was abolished in 2014. The government's now talking about this new National Skills Commission. If the National Skills Commission does a quarter of what we were doing previously, that is good. It's useful to know where the shortages are, what the courses are that people should be studying to meet those gaps where industry and um, educators are working together to, um, to, to fill gaps, where um, we can tell parents, you know, uh, in five years' time, we're likely to still have a shortage of this, but in five years' time, we're going to be oversupplied in that. So if you're encouraging your kids to go down this area where there's going to be an oversupply, maybe think twice. Um, that sort of information is really valuable and we don't have it. And if um, the, the National Skills Commission that the Prime Minister's announced um, does any of that, well, we'll that, that's good. We'll, we'll, um, we hope that it will. We haven't seen much evidence of that. It was announced in May last year and we haven't really seen a lot come out of it so far. But, you know, fingers crossed. Um, and uh, when it comes to... Um, Look, I, I want to be supportive. Like, I actually really want to work with the government on this. I think employers want to work with unions, want to work with TAFE because it's in nobody's interests to have millions of unemployed or underemployed Australians and skills shortages. It's in nobody's interest to have that. The path to fixing that, well, I, I don't think we've got, I don't think we've got much detail from the government yet on what they uh, intend. No, and we know in my electorate we've got um, Richmond TAFE, Wentworth Falls and the Katoomba TAFE and they each have quite distinct personalities and offer different things and they all link in with our economy but they could do, if they were funded more effectively, they could do so much more. That's um, right. So, yeah, there's work to do there. Now, I'm going to, I've got a couple of last questions I'm going to wrap together um, and they sort of relate to one is around long-term mental health support for students. I think um, while there's been lovely things that have come out of this, it has also exacerbated some uh, mental health issues for students. But I've also got uh, uh, someone who's, I can read the question, but I can't see the name, but just about support for um, teachers as they go through, which we've touched on. And then the third bit of it is, what about for the parents who still, for various reasons, feel very uncomfortable with their child going to school? Uh, and the making sure there's support so that those education, that education can continue and that they're not just marked as not present when, in fact, they may be continuing uh, work from schools. So that's sort of the wrap-up questions, touching on schools, mental health, how they work. I'll just throw that to you. <laughs> there are three very big questions, Susan. Um, I think if people genuinely have health concerns, whether they're parents or teachers or students, uh, we do need to make alternate arrangements for them uh, to be learning from home uh, or working from home. If, if someone's immune compromised, for example, if they've got an underlying health condition, uh, absolutely, we need to be flexible enough to accommodate that. And that will require extra resources. We can't expect the one classroom teacher to be teaching all day in the classroom and supporting, uh, you know, one or two or more children at home as well. Uh, we need to resource that properly. Um, what was the middle question? Uh, was about um, the 
almost uh, the teachers being supported as they yeah. So um, I, th I think, oh, and the mental health elements of it. Okay, yes, so I think I think we need to amend the work so that um, so that you know anybody who's got a health concern can keep working from home or keep learning from home. But but the the, the bigger question of the anxiety this has caused, um, the uh, exacerbation of uh, other, you know, if people have uh, had underlying mental health. Uh, struggles previously in many cases. This says obviously that the isolation and the worry has made that worse. Um, I think, um, look, two things about this. Schools are ideal places to uh, connect kids to supports outside school. And I know, Susan, you worked really hard to get the new headspace in your electorate. Um, so uh, making sure that those connections are made to outside services is important. But also, if a school has adequate funding, it can make decisions about offering mental health supports at school. And um, another feature of the, um, the, the lack of success we've had in properly funding schools or getting to that schooling resource standard is, is the fact that Schools that in the past have been able to buy in um, programs, re resilience building programs, um, uh, other sort of mentoring supports and so on, have really struggled to do that in recent times. Uh, I think school communities are in a great position uh, often to know what their kids need, the sort of supports they need, and if they've got the funding, they can do that. I'd like to see more of that from the state government. I, ha I haven't heard that. I haven't heard that that's coming. No, I, I mean my feeling on the mental health side is that we hear a lot of announcements, but we don't always see it, it get down to to the ground to where young people are in particular. Um, it, I think that's going to be one of the challenges that we we face going forward. But look, thank you for joining us. Um, and. Oh, there are probably some questions that I've missed and if there's anything I can reply to, I will. If there's things I need Tanya to reply to, I'll be uh, heading heading to her for answers. So to everyone who's tuned in, beginning, middle or end or all the way through, thank you. This will be up on Facebook so that if others have missed it and there's something you would like them to look at, feel free to direct it direct them to it uh, but hopefully Tanya next time we see you will be in person uh, in the flesh in Macquarie because you're always welcome here oh thank you Susan and I love to visit and uh, I'm so sorry about my my butterfingers with the technology tonight I'm not I'm not normally this bad listen a day when you don't learn something is a day not well spent thanks see you later